So how y'all doing today? Y'all doing good? You warm? Hope so. Some of you are never warm, so I don't expect you to be today. Oh, good. Happy New Year. Y'all have a good New Year, New Year's Eve. Good New Year. Excited to be starting off 2022. That sounds weird. Wow, 2022. It's going to be a good year, though. It's going to be a good year. What's so funny about that? Oh, my. It's going to be a good year. Oh, well, it's good to be with you all. It's good to be around God's Word. So um, I'd like it if we could dive, dive into God's Word today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 13. Um, and I know I talked about this last week also and two weeks ago, but I'm, I want to remind you again um, that the way that Matthew is portraying Jesus here is important. Um, the, the, the picture Matthew is trying to present of who Jesus is is really important to understanding the text in, here in Matthew. So I want you to remember that, that as Matthew started this gospel, he presented Jesus as the king, he presented him as the Messiah, he presented him as God in the flesh. Okay, so we need to remember that that's who, who Matthew is presenting Jesus as. And he's really writing to primarily a first century Jewish audience, but he's including some things for non-Jewish people, but primarily a first century Jewish audience. And today, today Matthew builds on that. He builds on that picture of who Jesus is um, as, as we get to Matthew chapter 2, and he presents Jesus as a type of Moses, Okay, as this type of leader of the Israelite people who would come and lead the people out of bondage. Okay, so, so Matthew is very intentionally using this, this language trying to show who Jesus is so that we see him as this type of Moses. Now, of course, we know, if, if you know the Bible, you know that Moses, Moses led his people out of physical bondage. They were in bondage to the people of Egypt, and he led them out of Egypt. Now, we see Jesus come, and he's leading his people out of another type of bondage. He's leading them out of a spiritual bondage, leading them out of a, a slavery to sin. Okay, so we see Jesus freeing his people, much like Moses went down to Egypt and f- saw his people freed from Egypt. Now, we say that, I say we, I say that, but I want us to understand that the primary character of this passage today, the passage we're going to look at today, the primary character is Joseph. Okay, he's the primary character in today's passage. Now, I know all 66 books of the Bible are about Jesus. Every word of the Bible should point us to Jesus in one way or another. Okay, I know that. But from a literary perspective, as we look at today's text, the primary character will be Joseph. Now, it's going to teach us something about Jesus, but we're going to look at Joseph also, okay? Now, Joseph is the one who's receiving the commands. He's the one who's doing the primary actions in today's passage. So Joseph is the character I want us to look at. While we see Jesus being presented as this new Moses, I want us to see Joseph and his actions also, okay? I don't want to overlook this. Okay? Because this is all about how Joseph responds to God's word. Now, I'll, again, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have kind of two strains running today. All right? We're going to have Jesus as the type of Moses, and we're also going to have Joseph in the way he obeys God's word and the way he follows God's commands. Okay? So I'm going to do my best to help us follow both of these strands as we're running through this today, but I want us to see both of those things. Okay, because like Moses, we see God, the Father's provision for Jesus even while he was a child, right? Think back to Moses. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 1, go back to Exodus chapter 1 and you're introduced to Moses, we find some things um, that are going to be true as, as God is providing, as God is providing for Moses. Okay? We find that as Moses is born, Pharaoh is tired of this growing Israelite population, so he decides he's going to take care of it by slaughtering these newborn boys. So he says, okay, we're going to have them killed. So 
we find there that God provides for Moses by protecting him. First, with faithful midwives. Right, These faithful midwives all the way back in Exodus who say, well, you know, we're supposed to report these children. But they come and they tell Pharaoh, wait, what, but no, by the time we get to the new mothers, they've already delivered the baby. Like they're delivering these children so fast, we're not even there in time. Okay, true or not true, I don't know, but that's what they said. Okay, so they find, we find these faithful midwives who are protecting these children. And then we find that Moses is born into a faithful family who hides this new baby as long as they possibly can. So Moses is born and they care for the child, keep the child as long as they possibly can until they just can't hide this new baby any longer. And then we find that this family does everything they can to protect this child, to give him a chance. So they place him in a basket and set him in the Nile to try to protect him. And of course, you know the story. Moses happens to float along and is found by Pharaoh's daughter who takes the child as her own. Fate would have it, fate or Um, let's say God's provision would have it. Um, Moses' mother happens to be the one who weans the child, who nurses the child. So we find that God provides for Moses. And this passage, the passage we're going to look at today, is going to show that Jesus, much like Moses, is protected by the Father. Is protected by the Father. God provides for Jesus even while he's an infant. But again, the primary commands and actions, they're done by Moses. So I want us to see his obedience as we see Jesus presented as this new Moses. I want us to see the obedience of Joseph, the obedience of Joseph. And I want to to tell you, I want to show you what that tells us about our obedience to God, what it means about our obedience. So as we see Joseph obeying the father, how does he do it? So again, we're going to walk through this text and we're going to see both how Jesus is presented as the type of Moses and the obedience Joseph shows to the Father and how that informs our obedience. Y'all tracking with that, okay? Good, good. Let's stand together, let's read God's Word, um, and then we'll dive into this, all right? So Matthew chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 13 and go through the rest of the chapter. All right, it says, After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in his dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through, through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. Okay, so again, as Matthew, as Matthew presents Jesus as his new Moses, we learn some things about our obedience to God. First, we learn that we must not delay in being obedient to God's word. 
We must not delay in being obedient to God's word. There's a sense of urgency that we need to have whenever we obey God. Now, that's not saying we need to be rash or we need to do something that is unwise because we're like, well, we want to be obedient as fast as we can, and I think this is what God's saying, so I'm just going to rush into it and do it. That's not the point I'm trying to get at. Whenever we have a clear word from God, whenever we have a clear word from God, we need to obey. We need to obey. We need to not delay in doing so. And that's what we find in today's text. Verse 13, it says, After they were gone, and who is they? The the wise men. The wise men that we looked at last week. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. Okay, so this angel, this angel appears to Joseph in a dream. In a dream. Okay. And that's how God chooses to speak to Joseph. Does that mean that our dreams are all something that we should listen to as if they're God's word to us? No. Uh, No, I hope you know the answer to that is no. Uh, Because if that was the case, then some really weird stuff is going to happen because most of my dreams are nonsense. Um, So I'm looking for some really weird stuff to happen if that's all God's word to us, okay? So that's that's not the point, okay? But especially in the Old Testament, even as we get into the New Testament, um, oftentimes God spoke through dreams and through visions, right? You read through the Bible, you see several times God speaks to his people through dreams. Again, that does not mean that every one of your dreams is some divine premonition that you have. That's not the case at all, okay? But oftentimes in God's word, we find people being spoken to by God in dreams. Now, could God still speak that way today? Could God still speak that way today? Of course he could. I'm not going to say God can't do that. But, but, more often than not, God has spoken another way, right? Hebrews chapter 1, uh, the, way, the way Hebrews starts, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, actually says this. It says, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And in different ways would include dreams, okay? So God spoke different times, different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, We have God's word. It's in his son. It's Jesus. So where do we find the words about Jesus or the words that Jesus spoke recorded? It's in the Bible. In the Bible. You want to know what God has said? You want to know what I'm talking, what we're talking about whenever we say we need to obey God? It's this book. So we need to know God's word so that we can obey it. So while God spoke to Joseph through a dream, he has spoken to us eternally and perfectly in the scriptures. He has spoken to us through the pages of Scripture. And if we're going to obey God's word, that means we need to know his word. Okay? So if you hear nothing else today, know God's word. I mean, I know I say that often, and I don't think it can be overemphasized. Like, we need to know God's word. We say we love God or we know him somehow. Okay, open the book and read it because it tells us who he is and what he expects of us. Okay, so know the word. So this angel, he brings this word to Joseph in a dream, and he says, get up. Get up. That's the first word he says. He says, get up. It's this this Greek word, egero, and it carries the idea of of waking up. right? So it could be translated as wake up or be aroused from your sleep. And that's what this, okay, just get get this humor, okay? Because I think this is hilarious. An angel, an angel steps into Joseph's dream. Now, Joseph is asleep, right? That's your, uh, now, I know you can daydream, but typically when you're dreaming, you're asleep, right? So get this. Joseph is over here sleeping, and here's this angel in his dream, and the first thing he says is, Wake up! Like, do you not think that's funny? 
Joseph is sleeping here, angel in his dream. Now, if he wakes up, what happens to the angel? Like, what happens to this, this word that the angel's delivering from God? What happens? Like, he's awake now, so is he dreaming anymore? How is he? I, I don't know. I just think that's hilarious. Like, maybe nobody else thinks that's as funny as I do, but Joseph is sleeping, and an angel steps in and says, wake up. But you haven't told me what else to do. So if I wake up now, then there's a pr- Okay, anyway, I think that's funny. Maybe y'all don't. But this word, this word, wake up or get up, um, it's often used to describe somebody who has been raised from the dead, right? Sleeping, sleeping in the Bible, we, we know this is a metaphor for death, right? We see somebody who's sleeping, um, well, are they really dead or are they sleeping? And there's, uh, at times I've been confused, like, was he like, dead dead or was he just like sleeping because he was tired? Like, what kind of sleep are we talking about here? Okay, um, just as an example, I, I just thought I'd throw an example of sleeping and death being a metaphor. So John 11, um, we, we have the story of Lazarus, okay? And most of you are familiar with the story of Lazarus. John 11, 11 through 13, it, it says that Jesus says this, And he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about a natural sleep. So again, you see this confusion between these two types of sleep, okay? Um, look, before we can be obedient to God, we need to realize we have all been asleep. We have all been dead. In our own sins, in our own trespasses, we've been dead. Every single one of us. And until we realize that we need to wake up, until we realize we need to wake up, we're never going to be obedient anyway. We need to wake up, hear God's word. See, because we were either dead in our sins or we were dead in our sins, and we need a Savior to wake us up from our sleep, from this death. And that's how it all begins. We have to be roused from our sleep. And until we do that, the fact that God has spoken and is speaking doesn't really matter because we're not going to listen because we're asleep. You know, I've used the metaphor of zombies before, before, right? Like, you know, like the walking dead, this idea of zombies. They might be moving. They might have something that appears like life, but they're not really alive. That's what we were. We may have looked like we were alive, but we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. And we needed a Savior to come in and wake us up. See, I can't actually, I know I can't, count the number of times I've wanted to walk up to somebody, grab them by the shoulders, and just shake them and say, wake up! Y'all ever felt that before? Been so frustrated because somebody just doesn't seem to get it. Like, just wake up already! Y'all ever been that frustrated? A few of you, maybe? Some of you are like, no, I don't get it. Never felt that way. Well, have kids. You'll get it eventually. Ah, there. Now some of you are starting to track. Okay, good. All right, so wake up. See, I've, now I'm just going to start randomly shouting wake up in sermons just because I think it's funny. People fall asleep in church and it's wake up. And then, ah. um, anyway, so now the reason I want to shake somebody and say wake up isn't just because I'm frustrated with them. Now, there is a certain level of frustration there. But see, I think that for those of us who have been awakened, like we've experienced this awakening, we don't just want to do that because we're so frustrated with them, but because we remember when God shook us and said wake up. How many of you can remember the day that God did that? I, I do. I remember sitting at my dining room table and it was like God shouted in my ear, Jared, wake up. Wake up from your sleep. You're just walking around. You might be going through the motions, but there's no life in it. You're not doing the right things. You're just kind of moving, but there's, you're not alive. You're still dead. Like, wake up. 
Wake up. So step one to any kind of obedience to God is to be awakened to the fact that God is speaking. Now, again, remember, there's, there's these two strains, right? So Joseph being obedient, and there's Jesus being pictured as this, as this type of Moses. So Joseph here, he's commanded to take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt because Herod was going to search for the child to kill him, right? And actually, whenever it says search for the child to kill him, that doesn't really do the text justice because in the Greek, this word kill means to utterly destroy. Like, it's not just like, oh, he's going to kill him. No, Herod is searching for this child to utterly destroy him. Like, this language is strong language. He's looking to utterly destroy him. Okay, so he's looking for him. Um, and while Moses, Moses fled from Egypt whenever he was in danger, now we have Jesus fleeing to Egypt when he's in danger. Okay, so Jesus is fleeing to Egypt, the place of refuge now. And I thought that that sounded a little odd. Does that sound odd to anybody else? Like, Egypt is now the place of refuge? You read throughout the Old Testament, it's always Egypt is this evil place that you need to take refuge from. And now it is the place of refuge. How awesome is it that God flips the switch? Like, I think that this is really interesting. But it really, if, again, if we're first century Jewish people, this shouldn't be that much of a surprise to us. Okay? Egypt actually makes sense at this time. Because Egypt, at this point, is another well-ordered Roman province um, at this time. It's outside of Herod's jurisdiction, so Jesus will be safe from Herod, at least for the time being. And on top of that, on top of that um, historians of the first century say that there were actually about a million Jews already living in Egypt. So for a Jewish person to go down to Egypt shouldn't be all that surprising. Now, again, you and I, just being 20, 21st century people, we, we look at this and we're like, well, Egypt, that doesn't make sense. But first century, it, it, maybe it makes more sense than we give it credit for, at least initially. And on top of that, Joseph now, he has the means to move his family and to provide for his family in Egypt, right? Because these wise men came and they presented these extravagant gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So now Joseph has the means to take his family down to Egypt to flee from this tyrant who's wanting to kill these children. So I hope you see, I hope you see the picture of Jesus as this type of Moses. But look at verse 14. Verse 14, it says, So Joseph... Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. Joseph does everything he's commanded to do. I, actually, as I was studying this passage, I numbered the commands, like the verbs, where it says, do this, do this, do this. I numbered them, one, two, three, four. And then I numbered Joseph's steps, where it says he did this. And guess what? One, two, three, four. And it matches up. Command, action, command, action. Joseph does everything he's commanded to do, step by step. Everything that he's been commanded to do. Okay. So, he gets up, takes the child, goes to Egypt, stays there until Herod dies. Now, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, the version I've, I've been reading out of, it doesn't say that this was the same night. It, it doesn't say the same night. It just says he took him by night. It doesn't say it was the same night. But it is implied by the text. He got up and did what he was told as soon as he was told to do it. Um, the New American Standard it says it like this. It says, So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Joseph didn't wait around. Joseph got up and did what he was commanded to do. Uh, th this guy named John Gill, he was an 18th century English pastor. He says, he says this, and I think this, this is really good. He says, When he arose, he took the young child and his mother. That is, as soon as he awoke out of his sleep and rose from his bed, he did as he was commanded. He prepared for his journey. Joseph was very punctual and expeditious in obeying the command of God. He took the young child and his mother by night, the very selfsame night in which he had this notice. Again, Joseph's not waiting around. Joseph has God's word. He has this command of God. And what does he do? He gets up and he does 
everything he's been commanded, step by step. He follows God's word. What God has said, he will do. But see, how often, how often do we respond with this kind of urgency to God's word? I mean, just if we're just being honest, how often do we hear God's word and like, okay, I need to be obedient to God's word now, like today. How often do we do that? See, I think more often than not, we hear God's word, and I'm not talking about just some dramatic call to go halfway around the world to some full-time vocational missionary or anything like that. I'm not talking about some dramatic call. I'm talking about like simple things. Simple things that we hear and we're like, okay, well, that's not, that's not some dramatic call. But how often do we hear God's word and just we kind of respond with a sense of complacency instead of urgency? Like think about James 5.16. James 5.16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for, pray for one another so that you may be healed. How often do we hear this and we're like, okay, confess your sins to one another? And we're like, uh, well, yeah, I know I need to. But, I mean, do I have to do that now? Like, I think more often than not, we think, well, you know, I'll do that tomorrow, next week, or, or I'll get the problem all cleaned up, then I'll be able to talk about it. Then I'll be able to tell somebody, well, I used to have this issue over here. I used to be sinful like this. And we think, well, I've got to clean it up before I, can do, before I can confess that sin to somebody. But that's not what we're told to do, is it? God's Word says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Like, we're not just confessing sin so that we can gossip about one another. We're confessing our sin to one another so that we can pray for one another. Not tomorrow, not next week, not when we get it all cleaned up, but now. See, my point is this. We need to stop waiting to be obedient to God's word. Stop waiting to be obedient. We hear God's word. We have God's word. We can read it. We can understand it. Then let's obey it and not wait to do so. So we must not delay in being obedient to God's word. Second, we learned that we must understand that there are consequences to disobedience to God's word. Okay, that's a mouthful. I should have said uh, being or disobeying God's word, but you get the point. There are consequences to disobeying God's word. Verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave order to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from these wise men. Okay. Now, again, Jesus being presented as this type of Moses, okay? Just like Moses was saved from Pharaoh as a child, now Jesus is going to be saved from this massacre of young boys when he's a child. So I hope you see that correlation. I hope you see this picture of Jesus being saved, much like Moses was. And now, some, some, some scholars have questioned the historicity of, of this text. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I think it's kind of silly to question historicity and really it's not the point. So I don't want to get too hung up. But I just want to show you that it is why it's my opinion and the opinion of many scholars, both secular and Christian, that these events should, in fact, be considered historical. Okay? Or is this a historical event? Like this massacre of these young, young boys. Is this a historical event? And I believe it was because from what we know about Herod, this would have been in perfect keeping with his character. Perfect keeping with his character, Right? We talked about this last week, that he had his own sons executed. He had his wife executed because he wanted to maintain his power. And now these wise men from the east come in and they say, well, where's this king of the Jews? What do you think Herod's thinking? He's thinking, somebody's infringing on my power. So this would have been in perfect keeping with him. I mean, if he's willing to execute his own sons and his own wife, what what makes you think he's going to care about somebody else's sons? I mean, why would he care? So this is in perfect keeping with his power. Further, the population of Bethlehem, it was very small. It was just a small village at this time. Um, one biblical archaeologist suggested the population of Bethlehem at, at this time would have been no more than about 300. So we're talking about a small town. 
the small town. So the number of boys who were killed in this massacre would have been only been somewhere in the neighborhood of five or six. Even the most liberal estimate I saw as I was studying this was no more than 15. Okay, so we're talking about a, a relatively small number of boys that were killed here. Now, while that is still terrible, that is still awful, okay, it probably wouldn't have made any major document of the time that would, that would have been recorded, at least in Roman history. And the reason I bring that up is we say, well, there was no real secular accounts of this happening, which is why people question the historicity. There probably wouldn't have been. It wasn't a huge town. Now, if this had happened in Jerusalem, where there was thousands of people, maybe it would have made some news. In Bethlehem, such a small number probably wouldn't have been recorded. So again, I do believe that this was a historical event. So, event. so Herod, he flies into this rage. He has these young boys executed. And Matthew ties it to this prophecy from Jeremiah, right? In verse 18, he says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Okay, so who is Rachel and why is she weeping? Okay, most of y'all are probably familiar with the Old Testament passage. If you're not, that's okay. Rachel was Jacob's wife. And she died around Bethlehem, okay? Died around Bethlehem. Now, why does that matter? Well, Jacob, Jacob would later have his name changed to Israel. He became this nation. He was the beginning of the nation of Israel. So Rachel, weeping, or weeping over Rachel at her death was the same as weeping over Israel and his offspring, Okay? You, you see this connection here. So if Rachel is weeping over her children, she is weeping over the children of Israel. All right? You tracking with this? All right, good. Good. So we see her weeping here at Bethlehem. And Matthew says, look, Rachel weeping over her children here, the children of Jacob, now the man who would later become known as Israel. And I think that this is interesting because this is a place that Jesus completely transforms, right? Now think about Bethlehem. Bethlehem has a rough history. This is where Rachel dies. This is where these boys are executed. This is a, an awful place. But do we think about it like that? I don't, I don't think Bethlehem and think, boy, that's an awful place. I think Bethlehem and I think a little town of Bethlehem, right? I think this picture over here. I think about the shepherds and the angels and Mary and Joseph coming in this, in this stable with baby Jesus being laid in a manger and then the wise men coming, Right? Jesus has taken this place of mourning and turned it into a place of celebration. All because this is where our Savior began. And the text says, look, this is a place of weeping. It's a place of mourning. See, what I want us to see today is that there are consequences to our disobedience to God's word, right? Let's just say that Joseph, Joseph had decided, well, I don't think I want to go down to Egypt. That's not my home. I don't want to go down there. What happens? Well, it's not good, I'll tell you that. Or what if he says, well, okay, I'll go, but I'm just not going to go yet. I got some stuff I need to tie up first. I've got a couple projects I'm working on as a carpenter, right? I got a couple projects I'm working on. I'm going to need to get these finished up, get paid. Then we'll head down to Egypt. What happens then? Well, it's not good. Now, again, that's speculation and it's hypothetical because that didn't happen. So what would have happened? I, I don't really know. I don't, I don't really know. But I know it's not good disobedience here would not have ended well. See, we, we instinctively know that there are consequences to actions, right? We, we know that somewhat instinctively. If you don't know that, then, well, you know, you're not picking up on the obvious. There are consequences to actions. 
every single action we have in daily life, uh, there are consequences. And we just, we know that. But whenever we come to the Bible and we see that there are commands in the Bible, we almost act like they're, they're optional. Like they're suggestions almost. Okay, I lost my spot in my nose. Stay with me for a minute. Okay, so let's just, I'll just give you an example of this. I'll give you an example of this, okay? Let's just say, you know that you've been commanded by your earthly authorities to pay taxes, right? What happens if you don't? (laughs) It's not good, right? You know that's not good. Or let's say that you decided that you didn't want to obey your earthly authorities and pay your mortgage. Then what happens? Are there consequences to that? course there are. You're going to lose your home. Let's say you decide not to make your car payment for a few months. Are there consequences to that? Yeah, they're going to come take your car back. Or let's say you get out here on I-29 and you decide you don't want to drive the speed limit. Are there consequences to that? Well, for some of you, maybe. Others are like, no, I've never been caught before. Oh, there's consequences. Some of you shrugging shoulders. How dare you drive over the speed limit? Okay, anyway, I'm getting off track. And there's any, uh, there's any number of other examples, right? We know that we have commands from earthly authorities, and we need to obey those commands, or else there will be negative repercussions, right? You know that. We, we know that. At least I hope you know that, because it's pretty obvious. But sometimes we almost read God's commands as suggestions. Okay, uh, I'm going to give you another example. We read a passage like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, where it says, No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. We read that, and we're like, well, yeah, I know. The very next thing we do is we go out and we start talking about the latest rumor. Right? How many times have you done that? And just so you know, like a lot of preachers, I hear a lot of preachers make, make like gossip as a, as a female thing. Oh, no, it's not a male-female thing. I've heard a lot of guys who do a lot of gossip. They just, I think a lot of guys try to frame it really well. So it's like, well, I'm just, I'm just trying to talk so I can help somebody. Right? Oh, boy. Very next thing we do after we hear this. And we think, yeah, but God's not going to like zap me with a bolt, from, bolt of lightning or anything. Right? Like, well, yeah, I know that that's what God's word says, but I'm not just going to like fall over dead right now or anything. Y'all ever thought that? No, nobody's going to admit to that. Nobody's going to admit to that. So don't, please don't raise your hand if you have. That's not good. Besides, you, you are half right. It's unlikely that God's going to zap you with a bolt of lightning. And it's unlikely that you're just going to fall over dead right now for, for being disobedient. But the reason I say you're only half right is because he's, a lot of times we think, well, he's not going to do that or anything. Well, the or anything, you're probably wrong. There are always consequences to our actions. Now, I know that I'm focusing on the negative, but there's a positive side to this too. Okay? There's always consequences to our actions, either positive or negative. Always. There will be consequences to your actions. And a lot of times we're thinking, well, yeah, but what about, what about those things that nobody, it's not hurting anybody else. It's not going to affect anybody else. Please don't buy that lie. There are consequences to every action. That includes hidden sin. Even if nobody else knows about it, there are consequences to those actions. So, what we need to understand as we look at God's word today is that a failure to obey God's word can and will have consequences. There will be consequences to that, okay? Now, we must not delay in being obedient to God's word. We must understand the consequences to, disobedient, to disobeying God's word. And then third, we must recognize the need for continued attentiveness to God's word. There's a need for continued attentiveness to God's word. All right, Joseph, he heard God's word, right? He heard the command to go down to Egypt, to get up, take the child and his mother, go to Egypt. Stay there until, Herod, until, until I tell you, right? 
He hears that, and he obeys. He did it immediately. Did what he was supposed to do. Now he's done, right? No. Uh, actually, in my notes, I said nope, um, kind of sarcastically. Uh, even my notes are sarcastic, so I'm sorry for that. Verse 19. It says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. And guess what Joseph did? Guess what he did? He got up, took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. He did step by step what he was told to do. It's not like he was like, No thanks, God, I listened to you before, and things are pretty good here in Egypt. You know, I've got a pretty booming business right now. I think things are going okay. Um, there's lots of people who need a skilled carpenter, so I'm just going to stay where I'm at. It's not what happened, is it? Not what happened. He did exactly what he was told to do. He got up, he was obedient. Now, notice the lack of specificity here in verse 20, okay? It just says, go to the land of Israel. The land of Israel is a big place. It's a big place, okay? Just go to the land of Israel. Now, think about who Joseph is and who he's raising, okay? Joseph knows who Jesus is, right? He's had an angel come and tell him who he is. So, Joseph has a pretty good idea who this child is, and he's thinking, okay, I am a surrogate father to this child who's going to be the Messiah, this one who's going to save his people. Okay, a surrogate father to this child, and i got to go back to Israel, where would you take that child? Where would you take that child? I mean, if you just had to stop and think for a moment, and you thought, okay, okay, I need to go to the place that's going to have the best access to religious studies because this is, a, this is the child that's going to wind up saving his people from sin. So I want him to be a place where he can get a good education, um, where he's going to have good access to a, to a synagogue, where he's going to have godly people around him to encourage him, to build him up. And I want to make sure he's in a place of influence. That way he, has, he, he can get, get a foot in the door, you know. And Joseph's probably thinking all of these things through, knowing the seriousness of what he's about to do. As a matter of fact, there are some scholars who believe that Joseph was probably headed to Jerusalem to raise this child. He was probably headed to Jerusalem to raise this child. But verse 22 throws a wrench in that. It says, when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. At first he's thinking, okay, Herod's gone. Good, good, the tyrant's gone, we're safe. But then he hears that this guy named Archelaus is ruling in place of his father over Judea. Now, just over Judea, not over the entire region, just over Judea. Now, this was bad news for Joseph because uh, Archelaus was just as bad as his father. Um, so bad, as a matter of fact, that after a few years of serving Caesar as national ruler over Judea, he was charged by both Jews and Samaritans who don't typically get along. He was charged by them of excessive brutality and he was deposed. He was actually banished to Gaul. So, yeah. Archelaus was not a good guy. So Joseph hears about this, and he was afraid. I get it. It was bad for him that Archelaus was ruler. So it says, being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee, where he settled down in Nazareth, which is about 70 miles from Jerusalem. He's 70 miles from this religious center, okay? 70 miles away. Now, why is that so much better than Jerusalem? Well, Galilee was in Israel, so he was being obedient to God's word. Right? He was commanded to go to the land of Israel, so go to Galilee, where you're safe. It was outside of Judea, which means it was out of Archelaus' control. Instead, it was under his brother Antipas, who was, um, who was a much better ruler, a much better leader than was his brother Archelaus. Okay? So, he heads up there, and we'll see, we'll see Antipas again later on, because he's the one who oversees the execution of John the Baptist and interrogates Jesus before his crucifixion. So, 
He, however, was less oppressive, and he was able to maintain peace in his region for 43 years, um, which meant that Galilee would have been a safer place for Jesus to be raised. A safer place for Jesus to be raised. Not to mention, as Matthew points out, the prophets suggested that the Messiah would come from a place of scorn, a place that was kind of belittled, um, not a place like Jerusalem. And Nazareth was that place. Nazareth was, Nazareth was his place. So much that uh, a guy named Nathaniel, he says in John 1.46, he says, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, I thought about this, and I was going to use a couple of examples from our own area of, of little towns that were places of scorn. And then as I was talking to Steph about this, she says, Yeah, you probably shouldn't do that, Jared. You're going to offend somebody. So, you all have those places in your minds you can just assume which ones I'm thinking of, okay? But those little towns that you think, can anything good come from there? Like nothing good ever comes from there. All right, now some of you already have those places in your mind. Please don't say them out loud because I don't want to cause any problems in church. So anyway, that place that you have in your mind though, that was Nazareth. That was Nazareth, Nazareth a place that became synonymous with being a low life. And this was the place that Jesus was raised. This was the place Jesus was raised. Not this religious epicenter down in Jerusalem. This lowly, scornful place. But again, Joseph would have been obedient if he'd gone to Jerusalem. At least to a degree. But it wouldn't have been what God wanted. So God makes a way for that to happen. God makes a way for him to come to Nazareth. And we need to continuously be seeking God's direction. Much like Joseph. Continually seeking God's direction. Not only was he obedient whenever he went down to Jerusalem or down to Egypt, but now he's in Egypt and he's still listening for God's direction, still looking for what God wants of him, looking for where God is leading, which leads him back to Israel. And as he comes back to Israel, he may have had another place in his mind, but he was continually being attentive to what God was speaking to him. So he winds up exactly where God wants him when he wants him there, all because he was continually being obedient. We, too, need to continually be attentive to what God has said. We need to not be those people like, well, I'm saved. You know, I repented of my sin. I did what God told me to do. I'm good now. God is still directing. Some of you in this room have been, have been followers of Jesus longer than I've been alive. Okay? Some of, you, some of you have. And that's not calling you old. That's not my goal. Um, instead, my point is, I've talked to several people in this room who have said as they get older and they learn more about who Jesus is and what he's done, the more questions they have, the more they realize they need to grow. See, Joseph was continually being attentive. And as followers of Jesus, the more we fall in love with Jesus, the more we'll want to know and the more and more and more we'll realize we have grow, room to grow. So continually be attentive to God's word. Continually be attentive to God's word. So we must not delay in being obedient to God's word. We must understand there are consequences to, to disobeying God's word. And we must recognize the need for continued attentiveness to God's word. So what? Well, it's pretty simple today. Pretty simple application today. Um, know God's word and obey it. There you go. Hard-hitting theological application for the day. Know God's word and obey it. Now, I realize I only pointed to the negative consequences of disobedience, at least primarily to the negative consequences of disobedience, but there are positive consequences to obedience also. And we need to be people who obey God's word, both to avoid the negative and to enjoy the positive. God, God blesses those who follow him. Now, that doesn't mean it's never going to be hard because that's not true. Of course, it's going to be hard at times. Read the New Testament. It tells you over and over again, expect difficulty. 
But there's going to be something good that comes through that. So we need to be people who follow after our God. Follow after Him. But that only happens when we hear and we obey. So, there's that. But please, don't wait to obey. Um, Putting off the doing of what God has commanded all believers to do is not a good idea. Now, you may be thinking, well, I don't really know exactly what God has called me to today. I don't know what God's called me to. And we like to personalize this, right? And think, well, I know God has a calling on my life. I know he has a direction for my life. He has something he wants from my life. But I don't know what that is. I'm still trying to figure that out. Okay, that's fine. Then do what God has commanded every believer to do. I mean, start with the general and work towards the more specific, right? This book has some very general application that every single one of us can apply. We just read a few of them, right? Confess your sins, pray for one another, don't say things that are going to tear people down. Instead, only speak words that are going to build people up, right? We can all obey those general commands. So let's start with the general and work towards the more specific, okay? So don't wait to obey those things because not only is waiting foolish, it's also disobedient. So do what's been commanded. Do what's been commanded. But most importantly, and I just want to drive this home for just a moment, this idea of waking up, right? This angel steps in his dream and says, wake up. Wake up. See, as I was thinking about this idea of waking up, being roused from the sleep, being risen from the dead, as I started thinking about this, there was this song that kept coming to my mind. Um, this song, many of you have probably heard it on, on Christian radio right now. It's called Wake Up Sleeper by this guy named Austin French. Um, anybody heard of that song? A few of you are nodding your heads. A few hands went up. Okay, good. And I was thinking about this, and I, this song just kept coming to my mind. And um, I, It's not my favorite song in the world. Uh, I'll just be honest about that. But uh, I started reading the lyrics. And some of these are really good. So I just wanted to read these to you uh, um, this morning. It says, Wake up, sleeper. Open your eyes. O sinner, arise. Leave your past at the door. Wake up, sleeper. Come to the light. Christ is alive. Death don't live here anymore. And then he goes on and says, Rise up. Come out of that grave. Rise up in that amazing grace. O sleeper, won't you come awake? Come awake. See, I think the reason many of us are disobedient to God's word, or the many of us, the reason we don't understand God's word is because we need to wake up. We need to be raised from the dead. We need to be shaken from our sleep, and we need to be brought, brought to life. See, I just want to urge you. Um, I don't know who you are, where you are, what's going on in all of your lives. I can't keep track of everybody as hard as I try. Um, what I am certain of is within the sound of my voice, whether it's online, it's in this room, there's somebody who hasn't come alive. There is somebody who does not know the saving grace of Jesus on their life. And what I want to tell you today is to wake up. Wake up. Just realize that you are a sinner. You have a problem. And it's a problem you can't take care of on your own. I don't care how good you think you are. My wife will tell you, I tend to think I'm pretty good. This is a problem I can't handle. Sin is one that's too big for me. I couldn't fix it. And you can't either. You need a Savior. You need a Messiah. You need a King. You need a Lord. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. And Jesus came, lived the life that you couldn't live, died the death that you deserve, so that you could have hope. So that you could hear and understand and obey. So that you could know your God. So I just want to urge you today, wake up. Wake up, sleeper. Let me pray for you all. Father, um, I guess first I want to thank you that you came and 
<laughs> you came that, that night and woke me up. Um, Lord, you raised my life from the dead. And I know I'm not alone in saying thank you for that. Not just for my life, but for the lives of those people around this room who have known your grace and your kindness and your mercy and your love and your forgiveness for decades. So Lord, I thank you so much for forgiving me of my sin, for loving me even when I was so incredibly unlovable, for sending Jesus to live that life that I couldn't live, to take my place as he took my sin into his body and hung it on the cross. And then proving that he had victory over sin and death and hell by being raised from the dead. So, Lord, we praise you today. I thank you that you call us to wake up. Um, Lord, so I, I first want to pray that if there's someone who doesn't know that truth, that hasn't experienced that awakening, God, I pray that you would shake them from their sleep in a way that my words, my words are never going to be able to do that, but your word can. So, God, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would save lives from death. Lord, and second, for those of us who are risen from the dead, who have been awakened, God, I pray that you would help us to be obedient, not as if it makes us more lovely or more pleasing to you, but it does draw us closer to you. So, Father, I pray that we could know your grace as we experience your presence. Um, So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be obedient um, so that we could experience your presence in our lives. Father, um, I just want to tell you that I love you and that I'm thankful for your word, and I pray that you would make it effective. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.